1: expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com Thrive. That's e c k f e l d t dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeld. I'm your host, and our guest today is Clint Paget. He is CEO and President of Project Success. We're going to talk to him about how to run successful projects, the whole kind of world of project management. Fascinating topic. I think uh, it can be a scary topic for a lot of people, but I wanted to have Clint on to really kind of talk about how you can approach this in a way that's going to be effective, in a way that's going to be manageable. I think a lot of service companies have problems with this because it's just hard and service companies kind of manage projects. You've got a lot of people. It can be very unclear Uh, and I think Clint can really provide us with some insight and some strategies on how you can successfully do this in a repeatable way in a way that's going to be easy to manage for your teams and, and for your organization. So I'm excited to have the conversation with that, Clint. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't we start with background? Tell us a little bit about your professional story and how did you get into project management and into the and being an expert on project management?
0: It is a circuitous route to say the least. <laughs> yeah. So I grew up in South Carolina, although nobody will be able to tell it on this call because I don't talk slow at all. But uh, right out of high school, I ended up joining the Navy. Spent six years in the Navy. And when you're in the service, as uh, those of us who have been know, it's uh, not it's not not always a thankful job. Right. It's kind of thankless. And, you know, I was working 12 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week on the ship. And I decided, you know, I probably need something better to do in my life than this. And I went out and I got a job in a shipyard as an electrician. And after two months of that, I thought, yeah, there's definitely something better to do in my life than this. So (laughs) I was lucky. It's probably no greater motivation to go to college, by the way, in the world than to work in a shipyard in Norfolk, Virginia, in December and January, which is exactly what I was doing. So I was lucky enough to uh, apply and get into Georgia Tech here in Atlanta. And I came here. I have an electrical engineering degree at Tech and I have an MBA from Duke University. My first job, I literally walked across the street from Georgia Tech is Coca-Cola. And I spent six years at Coca-Cola as an engineer in their sales equipment technology group. And in 1994, city of Atlanta had just been awarded the Olympic games for the 96 Olympics. Sure. And I really wanted to work on that project. Probably wasn't gonna be able to do that as an engineer. So I had familiarity with this company called Project Success because we'd use them on some of our projects, ironically with great success. Mm-hmm. And um, went to work for them instead. Got to work on the Olympics. I got to go back to work at Coke on the Olympics as a contractor. And I've been a part of, I think, all but two. As a company, we've done them all since 1992 for Coke. But personally, I think I've done all but two of them since the 96 Olympics in Atlanta. So that's kind of how I got into project management was, you know, backdooring it. But it's been great. And I've loved it. And I've been doing it since 1992, actually. And I really enjoy it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And when we talk about project management, give us a kind of a a definition or a scope or, or what do you refer to or what are you trying to what are you kind of including in the domain of project management when you talk about it.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I'd like to just <laughs> I wish there was a different word I could use in project management because that yeah. tends to people. you know, people have probably already turned us down, right? Because project <laughs> management is boring. And uh, ironically it's, there's nothing boring about what I do, thankfully. It's uh right. it's a very rewarding job and I love it and we have lots of fun doing it. But, you know, you think about so in the world of projects, obviously I look at it from the client's perspective because we have like as I was telling you earlier, we have Fortune five hundred clients and they most of them have been with us for twenty plus years, some as long as thirty-five years. So obviously we have repeat business. But the obvious goal for the client is to make sure that their project is done on time, on budget, and with all the quality that was promised up front. Mm-hmm. And that's all great. And that's what we want to do for sure. But our approach is really team centric because we understand that in today's world, Most people work in a matrix organization where they are reporting functionally, you know, solid line to their functional manager for pay raises and job reviews, et cetera. And they were, they report dotted line to five or six different project teams. So as the project manager on that project, I don't really own the people on my team because it's a matrix organization. And that's clearly a struggle because I have no formal authority over the people on my team to get the work done, yet I'm being held accountable for the project. So we look at project work. We want to make the client happy. We want to obviously get the project delivered on time, but we take it from the perspective of the team. It's all about the team. We want the team to, to put the plan together. We want them to have ownership and buy-in which by the mm-hmm. way is the only way you're going to be successful in a matrix as a project manager is yeah. that the team holds himself accountable so we're very much into collaboration and team-centric planning
1: yeah it makes sense I mean I just um I think the the modern world has changed so much over the last you know 10 20 years in terms of kind of collaborative work you know most of the work that goes on to the business these days is you know people people having to work together in, in very kind of tight ways to make these things happen it's no longer you know someone sitting in a cubicle kind of pushing the spreadsheet by themselves what are some some of the other things you've noticed over the years in terms of how work has changed, kind of things you've had to kind of embrace or change in terms of the way you approach project management, because of the changing nature of business, or the way kind of people handle projects in the in the business world?
0: I think it's interesting because as an engineer, I can talk bad about us because I like to say I are one. <laughs> and and I'll be stereotypical here for a moment, but I, I think there's a grain of truth in what I'm about to say. And I think that people in general, especially us technical folks, They tend to gravitate towards people just like us. So when I, if I'm teaching a class of 60 people, what I always find fascinating at a client site is all the engineers sit on one side of the room. (laughs) <laughs> and, and you know, the reason I, I thought to myself, why do they do that? And I realized they do that because they all speak the same language, right? Yeah. They all speak the same technical language. They all think Dilbert is really funny. They all took calculus in college and they had that shared bond of pain. Mm-hmm. And then they don't mind sitting close to the IT people because the IT people are kind of technical to the engineers. Yeah. And what I really find interesting is both groups want to sit as far away as possible from the marketing people. Yeah. Right. And that's because they don't speak the same language, right? The Mm -hmm. marketing people speak a different language than I would as an engineer. And what that really boils down to is I think human nature is we like to be around people like ourselves and we have this desire to want to be in silos. Especially if I'm an engineer, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I can go design the perfect widget if you'll leave me alone. I'm going to go back to my office, my cubicle, and in six months now, come back having designed the perfect widget. But I don't want to come to your project management meetings, and please don't maybe come to your super marketing meetings. Just leave me alone, because I want to go live in my silo. But the problem with that approach is when they come back, having been very proud of themselves, having designed the perfect widget, the marketing person says, I can't sell that. There's no market for that. So we need to be collaborative. And what I find is technology has done is actually made us... I know people think technology makes you more collaborative. I find it makes you less collaborative because what I I find people have this kind of going off the silo approach. They have this throw it over the fence mentality of I want to check it off my to do list and I have a better chance of doing that. If I can shoot you a text, send you an email or you post something on JIRA than if I actually have to have a conversation with you.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, I see that happen again and again. I mean, people just use kind of technology as a weapon, <laughs> you know, like, you know, it becomes they, the, the system for alerts and I'm just going to send you messages. You're going to have to do updates. It's going to ping you.
0: Yeah. I'm a big fan of, of conversation, not communication, you know, and, and uh, as I, I have two books and I have a new one coming out and I have a whole couple chapters around this idea of communication. And as I was researching it, In my mind, I had communication. I I thought, you know, we need more communication, more communication. Then I went out and looked to get the definition of communication because I I thought it was what we're having right now is you and I are Mm -hmm. communicating. But it turns out, according to the dictionary, communication is actually the active process of using words to express or exchange ideas. Right. And the key word there is I can have a communication. That's one way I can email, I can text, and that's actually communication. And then I thought, well, what would be better? And it turns out what's better is having a conversation, because a conversation is an oral exchange of ideas. So you and I are having a conversation. And as I was researching this, it just grew on me more and more. I think back when you were a kid and there were like 10 people in a row, and the first person whispered in the second person's ear a secret, and that person had to turn and whisper it in the third person's ear. Mm-hmm. And by the time it got to the 10th person, it wasn't remotely what was said to the first person because it kept changing, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's because you're having a communication, or you're communicating one way. Yeah. And there's no chance to ask, clar- you know, to ask clarifying questions, and what do you mean by that? And so each person takes that, puts their their understanding on it, which shifts it slightly. And by the time the tenth person shifts it, it's completely different than what we said in the first place. Yeah. Whereas if we had a conversation where each person could could say, "Hey, well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean go left? Do you mean go right? Do you mean go slightly south? Do you mean go slightly north?" You can get clarifying answers, and therefore, when you say to the next person, what comes out is very, very clear.
1: Yeah. So, and how? So, when you're working with teams on project management, what are you what are you really doing? Like, what are you training them on? What is the process that you put them through? How are you helping them get better at doing what they're trying to get what they're trying to do, what they're trying to accomplish?
0: So, we come in and we teach a basic. Project management methodology called the Project Success Method, which is based on the Critical Path Method from the 50s, mm-hmm. and it's really all around common conversations. Again, we teach them about having a conversation up front about what the scope of the project is. Are you? What are you actually agreeing to? Do you understand what you're agreeing to? Does everybody <laughs> exactly. on the team yeah. a, understand that? Are you all in alignment? Is the team in alignment? And oh by the way, does that actually match what the customer actually thinks they're going to get? So the first part is teaching them how to make sure you have those conversations around clarifying what's in the scope of the project, what's not in the scope of the project. Project and really, having the having the, really the hard arguments up front about the plan, right? About what we're going to do and not do, yeah. and then we teach them about you know how to identify activities and how granular they should be. You know, you want to find you want to strike a balance between you know you don't want to track things in hours because that's super granular. You're going to drown, and you also don't want to have things that are that are three months long as one task because you get lost in the activity. Then we talk about how to find the, the project. But throughout it all, there's really two resounding themes. One is conversation, and the other is collaboration. We believe very strongly that the people on the team should develop their plan to make it their project. They identify their own tasks. They don't get mandated tasks. They get to decide the duration of the activity. They get to pick the predecessors of their activity. So really we teach that whole process, that whole, that whole methodology.
1: When you're done with the work, how much of the value is sort of the plan that they create and how much of the value is the kind of the relationships and the, the training and the process they've been through and kind of the connections they've established having gone through the process.
0: I would say you don't get the former if you don't do the latter. You're not going to have a successful project plan if you don't have the, the bonds that form during that planning session. You know The way that I look at it is this. it's it, Let's say that I've been working with the same company as an employee for, for six or seven years. And I know that when I do my task, I, I work in Atlanta and we have corporate offices all over the globe. And when I finish my task, I email it to joe at acmecorporation.com and Joe does some magic to it and the company makes money and everybody's happy. Happy, right, and let's say that I have seven different projects and I'm, I'm working on for Acme right now. So I'm busy. I'm putting in my 50 hours a week or plus. Mm-hmm. I'm doing my job. I'm working really, really hard. And Joe's activity, frankly, I'm not going to get to it in time. It's going to be late, and mm-hmm. I don't really know Joe other than an email address. So, and I'm working hard. I feel I feel good about what I do, and so I'm a few days late. Let's say I'm four days late, and I email it to Joe four days late, and email say, "Hey man, sorry this is late, but it's the best I could do. I'll talk to you soon." And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother me. It's kind of the over the fence mentality. And what we find is we change that, that approach. We actually bring people together into a room for three days, let's say, to plan a project. And what happens is over that three days, hey, Joe, how are you? I shake his hand. I get to know him over a coffee break or over lunch or on a sidebar conversation. I learned that he has a son, my son's age and his son plays soccer and my son plays soccer. And before you know it, Joe is not an email address. Joe is a living breathing human being that I now have a bond or a connection to. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting about that is when we develop the project plan, we find out that my activity that feeds into Joe, his activity, if Joe's late, the whole project's late. And I mm-hmm. say, well, you know Joe, something is wrong here because you know I remember the last project we did together just a few months ago. I was three or four days late. And the project wasn't late, so something is wrong with the way we've had this laid out. And Joe says, "No, no, Clint, it's laid out properly." He said, "The problem is last time when you were four days late, I had to work two weekends in a row to make up for it, and I had to miss my son's soccer game that was really, really important mm-hmm. to me." And so now I feel bad because I have a kid, you know, Joe's good Joe's, uh, son's age, and and now when I go back to Atlanta. He's not just Joe at com. He's, he's Joe that I that has a son, my son's age. And I want to make sure that the next task is not going to be late to him because I don't want to be the reason he missed some big event in this kid's life. Yeah. Those bonds that you form there can get used forever on project work. It becomes virtual. But you have to have those bonds formed at the very beginning to be successful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You have to you have to really make people people, not just email addresses and phone numbers and exactly. uh, tags on project management tools and things like that. Yep what um you know one of the things I always find about kind of project management or the the challenges is the kind of this estimating process how do you handle this you know when you're doing the planning work you know you you decompose the project and all these tasks, all these steps, these things that need to get done, but how do you know or how do you help people figure out you know, how long something should take? Is this two days? Is this ten days? How do you deal with the estimates? How do you deal with uncertainty? What's kind of your approach to that?
0: So a couple ways. First of all, let's take it as two separate questions. One is how do you deal with duration, you know, figuring out durations the other mm-hmm. is the uncertainty piece. So I think the first ground where we have to lay is that we know going into a project that you are not going to have perfect knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Therefore, your duration estimates are not going to be perfect. we we'll And that's okay. You know, if you're designing a bridge that I'm going to drive a car, uh, drive across, or you're driving, you design the car I'm driving in, then I want you to have six, seven, eight decimal places of accuracy. But in project management work, we don't need that. In fact, with project management work, I liken it to this. I want to get the ball rolling in the right direction and keep it out of the ditch. If it drifts a little left or a little right, that's okay because I can make course corrections along the way as long as it stays out of the ditch. So the ground rule we give going in was, first of all, we have a lot of different ways of coming up with durations. We can look at staff hours. We can apply – there's some techniques on that. We can do what's called planning poker Mm -hmm. where you look at the other people on your team and say, what do you think it should take? And you take all that into consideration. You can look at past projects. I mean there is a ton of different ways of doing it. But you just need two things when it comes to durations, we we believe. You need a reasonable duration. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just needs to be in the ballpark. Mm -hmm. And I need you to be committed to it. right? So whatever number you give me, I'm going to hold you accountable. Mm -hmm. But the third thing I'll tell you is we believe very passionately that if you get better knowledge later, you can change it. Yeah, And that's very different than the mentality that most people have experienced in their world with project management, where the project manager says, we'll give you a placeholder. I'll let you change it later. And the person thinks, yeah, that never happens. All the, <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. whatever number I give you today gets used to club me over the yeah, head exactly. for the remainder of the you project. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. our ground rules, is you have to be able to change those durations because I live in the real world. I work on real projects for 30 yeah. plus years. And here's what happens in the real world. If I know, now, if I'm thinking about my task and I think to myself, you know, that's probably about eight actual hours of labor to get that thing done. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, all right, in a normal week, because I don't know when this task is going to happen yet. So I don't know what other projects I'll have going on. But I think in a five day period of time, I ought to be able to carve out eight hours to get this thing done. So I'm thinking five, but then the project manager, I know this project manager is never going to let me change it. I end up doubling it to 10. Yeah, exactly. Right. And the problem with that approach is now that the schedule says 10, for something I really only wanted five and only need eight hours for, how often do you think it gets done in 10? 100%. <laughs>
1: yeah. How often
0: do you think it gets done in five? Never. It never, never. gets done, right? Exactly. So durations become self-fulfilling prophecies. So yeah. it's, it, to us, it's much better to let the person change the duration later. If they find out they got jury duty or their kid is sick or they got mm-hmm. pulled off to put out a customer issue, they have to be able to change their durations. And we find that if we understand they could change it, you get much, much more accurate numbers than they would have originally thought. And the second part of your question was, how do you handle risk and uncertainty? Yeah. So there's kind of the we call them the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns, yeah. right? Yeah. The things you know you know that you know you don't know, like you know that at the beginning of a project somebody's going to get sick, but you have no idea who, for when, or how long. Mm-hmm. And then the things you didn't know that you don't know, like the tsunami or the forest fire or the mudslide or the factory that you went out of business. All right, these are mm-hmm. so for us we take them into two pieces. One is I know on a project of any size or complexity. I'm going to have to have a period of time after each major phase for debug or rework. Yep. Because whatever I design, whether it's a piece of manufacturing equipment, it's a tractor or it's software, it's going to come out and not be perfect. And I've got to put in some time there for debug and rework. So that's a placeholder to manage risk with. We also add acti- We also add time to the duration of the activity to manage risk. So if I... I'm thinking through all my my machinations, I come up with a 20-day duration for my activity. Well, if that activity happens outdoors and it's subject to rain, then I've got to figure out, well, you know, how often is it going to rain on average? And I've got to build a little extra time in to mitigate that risk. And that is different than the sandbagging approach, right? This inflate all my durations because I can't defend that, but I can defend adding, you know, four days in a 20-day task for rain when it have, You know, it averages one day a week for rain where I live. So those are the way we approach risk. We add duration into the task that, where it resides, and we add activities to address it as well.
1: And you mentioned another one, and I think it was really interesting, and it's subtle, and I think a lot of teams and/or a lot of um, you know projects don't really incorporate it. Which is the well, I know this is going to take eight hours, but depending Depending on when that eight hours shows up, I may or may not be able to do it right away. There's kind of this, that how much time it's going to take versus when can I actually schedule it and how you kind of lay out your your personal plan, particularly when you're working on multiple projects. Like if everything happens to land on me in one week, I'm not going to be able to do them all at once. How do you kind of weave together kind of a an individual project plan with an individual as a person, a team member's kind of schedule? And when when they have multiple projects going on, how do you, how do you kind of, reconcile that data or work through those kind of collision issues between projects
0: yeah so it's really kind of a two-pass process again first of all we always have the the team members in the room uh, helping plan the project so that each team member can identify his or her own activities so, yeah that's my task I own it and then you know what's interesting people are often concerned about sandbagging people who yeah. inflate a duration. And actually that's not been our experience. Our experience as a company over almost 40 years now has been, you are much more likely to have somebody who's overly aggressive with a duration than they are to sandbag. Mm. I often find myself pushing back harder and say, really two days? That seems really aggressive. It's just, it's just 16 hours. Well, no, no, no. So you don't work on any other projects. Yeah. Well, I got five other projects. Okay. Do you have customer issues to put out? Exactly. You got to work on the help desk. Take all that into account when you give me a duration. And so when they do that, now the two days becomes six days to account for the other things they're working on. But again, at this moment, they don't exactly know. When that task is going to be, so it's just uh, their best guess. And then once we get the plan put together with everybody's best guess, now we have it set in time. We know when that task occurs. Then they can look at it and go, oh, that's a really, you know, that's that's a time when the test bed is down, or you know, the manufacturing, you know, we don't want, we don't have any time available because we're really busy that time of year. And then they can adjust it. And once we do that on all the projects, we can look at all the projects for you across everything and say, look at any of these windows of time and look where you have too much work. And will move some things so that you can accommodate when you have availability versus when you're overloaded. Yeah. So it's kind of a two pass process.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think, and that's, I think such a hard thing for a lot of organizations when they get so many, so many projects going with, with different resources and, you know, unless they really do the kind of capacity planning and, and capacity analysis, it's, they can get really stuck, uh, particularly if they don't have depth in certain areas if you've got a critical constraint in a certain capability and that one becomes in high demand all of a sudden across a lot of projects. That's where I, I just see a lot of projects go south because everyone's waiting for that one person or that one that one team to process an issue.
0: But if you've done it all, if you've done it right, then you'll know who that yeah. person is that you need to go out and find three more of yeah. or find uh, find when they do have some availability. Yeah. And the other thing I find is interesting is people might misconstrue what I just said earlier about, oh, you could change things. So the deadline is, doesn't matter. No, no, no. I work on Olympic projects. The deadline matters, (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) That's not going anywhere.
0: The deadline's Mm -hmm. not going to move, but that doesn't mean that the tasks between now and the end of the project can't move. They could shift all over the place. Mm -hmm. It's just as long as the ones that are driving the end date, which are the critical path items, those are the ones that you've got to be more careful with. But even if one of those is late, which is going to, you know, I'll be honest, you know, I I probably have updated thousands of projects in my career, and I don't know that I've ever had an update where something on the critical path didn't get delayed, so the project got delayed, which we call slippage. Mm -hmm. But part of the process is when that happens is you look at the people on the critical path and you say, you ask one question, how are we going to get this time back? And together, you yeah. all decide what to do in parallel or where to put the resources. So the deadline is always, is always going to be held. But there's a lot of shifting going on in between then and now.
1: Yeah. Well, and I like the sort of the distinction you made there between, you know, a task, a general task versus a task that's on the critical path. And and I don't think many projects really take the time to think through that in that, you know, some tasks can slip and it's it's fine because they don't sit on the critical path. There's lots of room between when their original date was and when the when it hits the critical path. But unless you know what that path is, it's hard to tell is this lip okay or is this going to hurt our project? Tell us a little bit more about critical path because I'm not sure the audience completely understands that, but give us a little more education on critical path and how you find it and why it's important.
0: Sure. But they're basically, and let's say you have a project that's that's a thousand activities. Uh-huh. And so whatever path from, from the start of the project to the end of the project, whichever sequence of activities takes the longest is the definition of the critical path. That's driving the end date to be what it is. So if I want to have the Olympics in July of 2021, which is about, what is that? That's about uh 13 14 months away from now mm-hmm. then there's a series of activities that are going to that are between now and July of 2021 that are going to drive that end date to be when it is so out of 1000 activities <laughs> the average is 10% or less will be on the critical path but well, let, okay. let's so let's say 100 out of 1000 will be on the critical path that means the other 900 can change yeah. but if people don't understand that then they take the mentality of we have to do everything exactly as scheduled and that's just not the reality. Things are not going to go the way you want. People are going to get sick. They're going to get called to jury duty. They're going to have to shelter in place. I mean, things are going to happen called real life. And if I know that this 100 things must be done perfectly as planned, but the other 900 can shift, then life is a lot better than thinking the all 1,000 have to have to be done perfectly. And to put yourself in the team in retrospective. If I know that this project manager is going to let me move 9 out of 10 activities, and not beat me over the head, as long as I get the one that has to be done perfectly done, my life's a lot easier. I'm I'm a lot more willing to work for that project manager than somebody else.
1: Yeah. Uh, just, yeah, just it really just solves or it makes the complexity of managing a project much easier because you can really focus on that 10% that, that really does determine or has impact on the final delivery date, the de- final deadline versus those that don't.
0: And we're not saying that the other 900 don't matter because if you ignore a non-critical path item long enough, it, it will be guess gone. where it ends up, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's nice when you're able to schedule and know that this task can be late by three weeks, this task can be late by three days, and that task can be late by three months. Yeah. This task has got to be done perfectly so people know know, because you use that, it's called Slack or Float, we're able to use that flexibility to delay things when somebody does have availability.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, so let, let's talk about that, because I was going to be my next question, is how do you deal with, and there's probably different terms here, but I think of like project buffer or contingency versus Slack. How do you kind of work in you know, elements, kind of the known unknowns, (laughs) you know, you you know, you're going to have things that come up, but you're not sure what they're going to be, but you need to account for them, at least as a placeholder. How do you deal with these kind of different um, concepts of like Slack or contingency buffer on a project? Where do they go? How do you think about them? How do you calculate them?
0: So for us, we, we, again, we're, we're pretty, uh, pretty stringent in how we think about this. And I'm perfectly, I find it perfectly acceptable and I will defend all day long that you need to add five days to a 20 day task to account for the fact that there might be rain me that's perfectly acceptable. What I can't justify is average, you know, kind of buffering every single task because I had I worked on a project in Canada and the project manager was new to the company and he was saying, "Hey, how come I can't I just want to add, you know, one or two days to all my tasks to give myself a safety net? What's the big deal?" And I said the big deal is if you add 2 days to every task that you have, and 10 of those activities end up on the critical path. You just delayed the project by a month. 20 working days is a month. And nobody's going to believe anything you ever say from now on because they know that's not true. Mm-hmm. So you know, we add activities for debug and rework. We have the ability to change durations. And I think that's really the biggest thing. There are the things that you know that you don't know, right, like the sickness. I don't know that that uh, Bill is going to be sick. I don't know who, how long he's going to be out. And that's okay because what happens is when Bill does get sick, I can look at the plan. And I can say, what does Bill have going on right now? And how much flexibility do his, do his activities have? That flexibility has a technical term called slack. How much flexibility or slack does his task have? And if there's anything that's, that's really close to being critical, and it only has a few days of slack or is on the critical path already, then I've got to find somebody else to do that task for Bill. But if it's got five or 10 or 15 days of flexibility, then I can wait for Bill to come back from his illness. Right? So that's how we adjust it. We're, we're going to meet every week or every two weeks to update the plan to do what I call course corrections. We're going to bring the plan back into reality. The best plan in the world probably is good for about 24 hours, and something will have changed. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly.
0: So and that's okay. That doesn't mean you don't plan. It just means you have to change your plan. And we yeah. don't want to change it every single day. So we have periodic checkpoints. For us, it's either every week or every two weeks. The team will get back together for one hour or less, and we'll bring the plan back into reality with what's actually going on. We'll learn about Bill's illness, or we'll learn about the fact that the factory that we're waiting on the parts for, this is a real project, actually. There was a bunch of parts that had to come over from China Mm -hmm. for one of my clients. And the day the ship was supposed to sail, they closed the port. All right. So how do you deal with that? Well, you pull the plan up and say, if that ship is delayed by a month, which Mm -hmm. it has been, what is the impact on the project? And then- We know we can't change that, but how about all those tasks that after the ship finally does arrive, between then and the end of the project, we'll have to squeeze a month back out and what task, what can we do to get that month back? Yeah. So we're constantly taking this news and feeding it back into our project plan so we can make better decisions.
1: Yeah. Well and then and you can identify opportunities. Well, like can you prep some of this work? Is there things you can do to you know take what was a week task and you know stage it in such a way that it's only gonna take two days now? So it gives you a tool to actually come up with where do you need to come up with strategies rather than just chaos.
0: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Good. Clint, if people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information?
0: You can look at us at projectsuccess.com as our website and you can follow me on clint.paget on all your you know LinkedIn Skype
1: all those. Awesome. I will make sure that the links are in the show notes so people can click through and get that. This has been a pleasure. I love to kind of geek out on the project management side. So I appreciate you coming on and having a conversation. And hopefully we've, we've given some good kind of hints and advice and uh, strategies for some of the folks listening to the podcast. But I really appreciate your time today.
0: If I could leave you with one more nugget, I'd like yeah. to do that. So here's the one takeaway I would give to your, to your listeners. So you think about if you have a long project, let's say it's a year long. And I always ask this, when people work on six different projects and one of them is a year long. How much work do you think actually happens in the first six weeks or two months, <laughs> yeah. right? It's almost none. And, yeah. and you know, why is that? And so here's the answer. In 1997, U.S. News and World Report did a, stir, a survey of a bunch of people in the U.S., and they were asking, what do you think this person's chance is to get into heaven? And they had a bunch of different people, and obviously it was in the, in the late 90s because of the people that they, they listed, but Bill Clinton – chance. Hillary Clinton, 55% chance, right? Uh Uh, Dennis Rodman, 28% chance. Oprah Winfrey, 66% chance. Mother Teresa, what percent chance do you think they gave Mother Teresa to get into heaven? 98% chance. No, 79%. 79%? Mother Teresa had a 79% shot at getting into heaven. Only one person scored (laughs) higher than Mother (laughs) Teresa. Who do you think that was? Oh, God, I don't know. I can't think of anyone. (laughs) They scored 87%. And that was the people taking the survey. <laughs> they gave themselves a better chance oh of getting God. into heaven than Mother Teresa. Oh and so you know, I looked at that and I said, why is that? And oh, I believe man. that's because you judge yourself based yeah. on your intentions. Oh,
1: yes, exactly. And you judge
0: others based on results. Yeah. So the reason no work happens in the beginning of a project like that is because you have good intentions. But if you want to be successful in the project, you don't need good intentions. You need a good plan. The
1: path to heaven is, is paved with good intentions. <laughs> That's right. You got it, man. <laughs> I love it. That was a great story. I don't think it just it just highlights, I think, so many so many experience I've had on projects is <laughs> <It's, it's laughs> encapsulated in that in that one story. Oh, this is great. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. I, and I encourage everyone listening to go reach out and, um, you know, look Clint up and, and check out his links there, because I think this is a huge thing for every company, but certainly service companies deal with this all the time. So thanks again for taking the time today. I really appreciate it.